Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to the Marcus Foundation's Marcus Ruzek about how to help and how to hurt our nation's veterans. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, reformers, social entrepreneurs, nonprofit executives, religious leaders, scholars, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. My name is Jeremy Beer. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on November 30th, 2023, and I am in Phoenix, Arizona. And our guest today, uh, who's not in Phoenix, Arizona, presumably in his Atlanta or suburban Atlanta home, uh, is Marcus Ruzek, Senior Program Director at the Marcus Foundation, where he has uh, worked for nearly 10 years. The Marcus Foundation is a private charitable foundation based in Atlanta, that was founded by Bernie Marcus, a man who co-founded a little company you may have heard of called Home Depot. Uh, and yes, the fact that we are interviewing a man whose first name is Marcus, who works for a foundation created by a man whose last name is Marcus, is mildly diverting. But that's really all there is to it. There's no, there's no relationship between these <laughs> two people. Marcus Ruzak gets this all the time. Um, one of the principal giving areas of the Marcus Foundation is veterans support. And our Marcus, Marcus Ruzak, is himself a veteran. He served as a special forces officer in the U.S. Army, and he saw duty in Afghanistan and Iraq, for which he received three, count them, three bronze star medals. So he knows whereof he speaks. Marcus Ruzek, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, I have had the pleasure of hearing you speak on a couple of occasions, conferences on matters related to veterans, um, care related causes and philanthropy, how philanthropy can help or hurt uh, in those areas. So really excited to have you on with us today because this is not really a topic I've covered, I think, on this on this podcast. Uh, so let's start by just getting a little bit more about your own background and how how a special forces officer comes to work at the at the Marcus Foundation. Sounds good. Um, it, I think it's a little bit of a, a story. I mean, frankly, I you know, for me, I was a high school kid on 9-11. Um, all I ever wanted to be was G.I. Joe. So I graduated high school, went straight in the Army. And the Army saw some potential in me for leadership, sent me to college, military school, became an officer, um, and and just kind of kept going from there. I, I had my first son was born at Fort Bragg. Uh, and my wife and I kind of said we had the opportunity to transition off active duty and back into the reserves. And um, and we kind of said, yeah, let's let's go home to Georgia and let's I'll get a real job, you know, start a career. And uh, I, I got fortunate in being connected uh, through a mentor of mine in the Army to the Marcus Foundation, who at the time, Bernie had decided wanted to hire a veteran uh, to, to really start to focus and build a portfolio on veterans philanthropy. Quite frankly, right out of the Army, I couldn't spell philanthropy. I, I literally I mean, I, I didn't know uh, anything about it. And Bernie was amazing because what, you know, he took a chance on me and kind of said, you know, we see some potential and uh, don't worry, we'll retrain you. Uh, he actually specifically told me that I was a bureaucrat and I didn't even know it. And uh, he said, but that's OK, we'll retrain you and, and teach you how to think like an entrepreneur. And really, the whole first year was exactly that. I mean, spending a lot of time with the boss, 
um, learning about Home Depot and the incredible company and culture that he built there. Uh, and then traveling all around the country, seeing um, and, and eventually in Israel around the world to see the, the philanthropic endeavors and, um, and the initiatives that Bernie has started. You know, Bernie's an entrepreneurial philanthropist. So it's, it's not a typical um, you know, foundation gig where there's a, a grant cycle and a budget every year and, and people come to you with good ideas and you decide to write him a check or not write him a check. Um, you know, Bernie is entrepreneurial. He sees problems and, and then he goes about fixing them in, in entrepreneurial ways. So it's, it's a really exciting place. And thank, I just thank the Lord that, that Bernie cares deeply about the veteran community, about my community, really, which is. How did that happen? How did Bernie get to have that interest? Yeah. So Bernie actually is a veteran. Bernie served in the uh, New Jersey Air National Guard uh, when he was in his early 20s and and, in college. Uh, He for a long time actually took me a couple of years to figure that out because he didn't really talk of himself as a veteran or consider himself one because he said, well, I didn't go to war. I didn't go anywhere. I but but he served. uh, So he did have a connection. He also had an older brother who. served in the army in World War II, was in the Battle of the Bulge, and in Bernie's words, kind of never came home. When he came home, he was never the same. And so those things left an imp- impression upon him. And then at Home Depot, he, he hired, you know, thousands of veterans. He, he got to work with these people and he saw a skill set that really connected with him. Uh, and ultimately, in his philanthropy, you know, Bernie re- retired, left Home Depot in 2002 and, and decided to focus exclusively on the Marcus Foundation and his philanthropy. And it wasn't too much, too, too many years after that, about 2007 to eight, when at the Shepherd Center here in Atlanta, which is a rehab hospital, he met a young uh, army specialist or E4 who had been uh, blown up in Iraq. Uh, he actually then was run over by his vehicle. So he not only had traumatic brain injury, but he had a spinal cord injury. And he, he heard this young man's story. And the story was, was frankly tragic. And what, what had happened is that he was injured in combat. He was sent to a hospital bed in DOD where he received little to no actual rehabilitation care. They said, you have total paralysis, you know, from the shoulders down. That's essentially your new normal, your new life. And uh, you'll be here. We'll take care of you until we transition you from active duty to the VA and then they'll care for you. And his mom was uh, fiery and not accepting that status quo. Um, thank God for him. And uh, she she kind of raised Cain and eventually heard about Shepard and and got to Congress and some members that that demanded something happen. And they they transferred him, which was kind of unprecedented. And this is where Bernie runs into him. So he sat for about seven months in a hospital bed, told he was paralyzed, gets to Shepherd Center. And about six weeks, he's standing on a tilt board and another month and a half. And the, the guy's walking with braces, you know, and Bernie hears the story and says, Shame on us! You know we we have to do better. We we're going to do something about this. I mean, really, that's how he started. And that's what he's been doing. I think I remember you saying uh, at one of the uh, recent uh, conferences where we ran into each other um, that the foundation has given something like two hundred million dollars at this point, if I recall correctly, toward veterans' causes. That's right. Yeah, Bernie Bernie yeah. has yeah done over about two hundred twenty five, two hundred thirty million. Like I said, he, we don't have a budget. He's, you know, he's never, he's never given, there's no number. Great. You know, it's just if it's, it's, right, so on, it's an entrepreneur and not a CFO that's right. approach. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, what have you? So, before you get to what you're doing now, tell me what you learned along the way. Uh, from I guess that probably this started in two thousand two or so. Um, yeah, two thousand seven eight. Um, and eight. after they yeah. had kind of had some success at the Shepherd Center here in Atlanta. 
And, and frankly, right after that, the RAND published a study um, which really named you know, the, the signature injuries of the global war on terror as what we now call the invisible wounds of war. And these are things like post-traumatic stress, um, traumatic brain injury, uh, you know, PTSD and, and the like. And so that really kind of, he had a deep care for why do we have veterans now killing themselves? They survive the battlefield and they come home and they're living a diminished life and so much so that they want to take their own life. And that just, just crushes Murray to his core and he doesn't sit well with him. So he wants to solve that problem. So in 2014, he decides let's hire a veteran and really build out a strategy here. And, um, we, but he, he still wasn't set on exactly how to solve this problem. He said, let's figure it out. Right. And so really the guidance he gave me was learn about him, about his values, about, uh, the Marcus foundation and our work. Um, and he said, kind of overlay that on my experience and that of my comrades. Uh, he got me trained up in nonprofit, uh, governance and, and operations, et cetera. And he said, now bring it to me. If, it, if, if it's going to have a big impact, we'll do it. And we really started by just making grants. So we, we went out, the things that looked right, felt right, uh, the people that were leaders that clearly had influence and were making a difference, we started investing in those organizations. And we funded across the spectrum. I mean, we, we funded in the early years everything from um, you know, education and employment support, transition support. We, we funded things like caregiver support for, for those who'd been wounded. Uh, we built custom smart homes for catastrophically wounded veterans all over the country. Um, of which there are not that many, you know, it's amazing about that is it's, it's a really, it's actually a solvable problem. Um, you could, you could give up a, a custom home that is built to someone's disabilities needs, um, and, and solve that problem. All you need was resources, right? And so we've, we've gotten very far in that respect. Uh, and then we, we also funded and piloted some things in the invisible wounds of war. And that was where, uh, we learned there was the most, um, kind of passion and drive for burning. And so we decided, um, after years into this, that we would kind of stop doing a lot of things on the margin and go deep in traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress. But that's what you're focused on now. What are you learning are the obstacles uh, in the way of effective giving or just really just even effective solutions, treatment for, for veterans suffering from the invisible wounds of war? You know, it, it's a it's a real tough area to uh, to navigate. The landscape is it's wild. I mean, frankly, there's there's over I think there's forty six thousand. Uh, plus organizations in America that claim to serve veterans that have 501c3 status, right? So just that alone is daunting. Um, how do you kind of separate the wheat from the chaff? So, so that was number one was, um, I mean, I've been doing this almost a decade and I'm telling you, I learn about new organizations, you know, uh, probably monthly. I, I, I learn about a new organization. So now the good news is kind of when you start to kind of distill down organizations that are having a high level of impact and operating at a high level, the, the numbers get a lot more manageable. Um, but so that's number one. I mean, the other piece is there's there's these big brands out there that draw a lot of groundswell support. You know, a lot of people want to support our veterans. And I'm very grateful for that as as a, a, a veteran of the global war on terror. You know, I, I came home to a grateful nation. I came home to um, a country that was maybe didn't agree with the war, but but agreed wholeheartedly 100% to kind of wrap its arms around me. I look at our Vietnam era generation, our Korean War veterans, and they did not come home. To that. You know, they they came home sometimes the opposite, often were shunned and just treated terribly. So we had a lot of goodwill. Uh, there's actually a paper written out of the Pentagon early in the war called the Sea of Goodwill, which really explained, hey, there's there's almost too much out there that's trying to help our veterans that not only can 
the giver, the funder, not navigate where to make the best investment, but but the veteran can't even navigate where to get the help, right? Because everybody wants to help. And so, so that's the first kind of, what are you going to do? And, and the truth is, it's no different than any other area in philanthropy, right? You have, you have a, a defined population, some, in some ways, a little bit easier to identify. Um, and, and you have uh, some specific needs. And in general, you find organizations that can service those needs. And, and sometimes you don't need a new organization that's only for veterans. It might even be better. We learned to incentivize an organization that's treating people that are struggling with the same issue and incentivize them to treat veterans. And not only does this help the veteran population that needs it, but it also kind of removes them from their silo. One of the books I read early on uh, in that, that in, and I lived this, so it really kind of shaped the way we approached it, was that veterans, you know, in a lot of ways, they, they kind of lived uh, this intensive experience of a tribe. The, the book I read by Sebastian Younger is called Tribe. And, um, you know, he talked a lot about how in some ways they kind of lived out the way we all ought to live in, in a tight knit community that depends on one another for our survival and for our goodwill. And, um, and then they come home to this American society, right? That especially over the last 20 years has gone increasingly more siloed online, not in that close community. And I think that's exacerbated a lot of the problems. And so on top of it, you have a massive, what we call the civilian military divide where 1% of or less than 1% of our population has fought this two decade long war uh, and, and many people are disconnected. And so, so veterans, we almost need to get them out of those silos and reconnect them to the, the society and the country at large. Um, so th- those are some of the dynamics, Jeremy. I mean, in general, wh- where I found a lot of help was that there were other foundations and philanthropists uh, and groups like the Philanthropy Roundtable and some others that, that were kind of bringing together smart funding around this issue. And we've really, for the last decade, run uh, uh, some some really close relationships. So we call the Veteran Funders Group, uh, and we get folks together and and lessons learned and learn who not to fund, which is some of the mo- the best lessons. Uh, is who screwed it up and combine resources and reach leverage, which is great. Before I want to ask you to unpack what smart funding looks like here, but before we do that, I want to ask you what dumb looks like. Not just dumb private funding, but dumb. We're talking about government programs, the mindset of the healthcare industry. I've heard you speak, I think, to some ways in which current incentives, processes in those areas are not helpful. Absolutely. I mean, so ideally, if things were run well, we have this massive government bureaucracy called the Veterans Administration. And Veterans Administration, as Abraham Lincoln said, you know, is to care for him who born the battle and his widow and his orphan, right? I mean, that under that mission, they, we ought to be caring for the needs of those who served in combat um, and came home with issues or, or needing support. The, the Veterans Administration this year has over $300 billion budget. That's with a B, $300 billion. It's the second largest discretionary item uh, on, the, on the balance sheet for the federal government. Only DOD is, is the larger. And, uh, and quite frankly, the majority of those dollars uh, go to pay veterans disability compensation. And so one of the glaring issues that we have, especially for this younger generation of veterans, is you've got a massive incentive to be sick. Um, you know, veteran getting out of service is incentivized to have PTSD because the government's going to send them a check every month tax free for the rest of their life as long as they still have it. Um, so that's number one. I mean, you've got this huge bureaucracy. And then in, inside of it, um, right behind that, you've got the largest healthcare system in the country and in, in the VA, the VHA, the, the Veterans Health Administration. 
And, and the hospital system in some places is very good. I, I mean, there's examples around the country where the VA provides pretty darn good care. Um, the, the problem with the VA, well, there are a few, but <laughs> one of the big problems, uh, in my opinion, is that if you've been to one VA, you've, you've been to one VA and, and they're all very different. They're broken out into regions and then um, even further down below that. Here in Atlanta, we have one of the worst performing veteran hospitals uh, in the country. And so I, I'm a patient at that hospital and I, I do experience it firsthand. Um, there are long waits. There are just so much bureaucracy for me to get to a doctor takes three or four administrative calls and approvals probably from three or four or five mid-level managers before the healthcare is actually being delivered. And then on top of it, you know, the VA does some things very well, like geriatric care, and, and, and it does primary care fairly well if you can, if you can get to the doc. Um, but, but what it doesn't and what it has not evolved to do well is to treat the specific injuries that our, our younger veterans are facing. That's, I want to talk about traumatic brain injury, number one, because that's an area that we focus on deeply. Um, so bottom line, you know, you have this government bureaucracy that in theory should make the veteran nonprofit or, you know, organizations just not need to exist. Uh, and yet, really what it's done is create more and more gaps. Um, and so it, it takes philanthropy to step into those gaps, improve solutions. And then ultimately, long term, you know, philanthropy can't pay for this forever. The VA's budget is $300 billion. You know, if Bernie gave every penny he had, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. To what they were. How, how many veterans do we have today in the U.S.? Yeah. So there's about 18 million veterans alive today in the U.S., uh, and the majority now of those are what we're, we're kind of called Gulf War era veterans. So that would be 91 to current day. So that includes global war and terror and, and um, the 90s, you know, Desert Storm era. And that's the fastest and largest growing population of veteran population, primarily because World War II generation is passing away and has largely. There are very few of them left. Um, and the veteran, uh, the Vietnam and Korea War, war veteran generations are also um, um, kind of going away. And so. So the younger generation, you've got its massive antiquated healthcare system that's got to evolve to, to treat their needs. And, and the disability system has got to evolve. I mean, I can tell you of a friend that I know that has served with who, you know, stepped on a mine, lost his leg uh, below the knee, and he uh, rehabilitated with prosthetic, got very sharp, ended up redeploying with a special operations unit doing the job. I mean, the, the guy is held back by that disability, nothing like zero. He, he's in the top 10, 10th of a percent of the military. Um, and he's able to perform that job with his peers. And, um, and yet the VA system currently will say, well, he lost his leg. He's hundred percent disabled and he's homebound. He can't do anything. Right. So they're using these old and antiquated medical definitions that have not caught up with innovation. And so, we got to find a way to get away from that and, and focus more on getting our veterans to continue serving throughout their lives rather than, you know, live off a mailbox paycheck economy. Yeah, because that's not good for veterans uh, own uh, health right in the end, paying people to be sick. That's right. I think it was you or somebody else uh, talk, has talked about when you're discharged from the military is sort of a I don't want to go too far here, but uh, the incentive structures are messed up. <laughs> Put it that way, right? They absolutely are. I mean, look, the Veterans Administration, the, the VBA, the Veteran Benefits Administration, um, every veteran who's transitioning out of the military, of which there's about around 200,000 every year. You know, so think about it. 200,000 people every year are coming off active duty, going back to, uh, to civilian society. And everyone has to go through something called TAP, the Transition Assistance Program. It's a DOD program 
Uh, and basically what TAP does is makes whether you're a two-star general or a private first class uh, and you have a, two very different experiences, those two are sitting next to each other in the same TAP class, receiving the same class about how to fill out a resume. Right. So, so I mean, it's just laughable to think that 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 we're we're meeting we're hitting the mark there. But in addition to that, one of the main blocks on TAP is that a, a representative from the Veterans Benefits Administration comes in and spends a lot of time, better part of a day, explaining to service members how to file their claims um, and how to how to enroll in veteran healthcare, which is not not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And then, um, but but a lot of it ends up being, you know, they're incentivized to hire veterans with high disability ratings. Ultimately, we have fraud, waste, and abuse. I mean, look, I, I, I'm a millennial. I, I don't like to identify as one, but I technically am one. And my millennial generation, which I'm very proud of because we fought the longest sustained military conflict in our nation's history uh, with an all-volunteer force that was provided primarily from the, the millennial generation. So I feather in our cap there. But look, we have an entitlement mentality problem, and that is not lost on the veteran population as well. And so, you know, I've heard it said... Um, that good, a good friend of ours that, that works with us in, in veteran uh, nonprofit is that we're kind of at a crossroads where the, the global war on terrorism or the post 9-11 veteran generation is at a crossroads where we could be the next greatest generation or we could be the most entitled generation. And, and I, I'm, I'm afraid we're, we're too far incentivized and a little bit too far down the ladder road. So the Veterans Benefits Administration is not doing us any favors by doling out cash to uh, transitioning service members. Well, uh, let's let's leave that there, go to a break, then we'll come back and, and talk about what smart funding looks like, uh, traumatic brain injuries, some of the exciting thing, things you're involved with at the Marcus Foundation. And we'll be right back with uh, Marcus Ruzek. Hey, folks, I'm Jack Fowler, the author of Civil Thoughts. That's the free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we try to strengthen civil society. Civil Thoughts gives you a dozen plus recommended readings. Here's a link. Here's an excerpt of important articles and essays that I've come across in the previous week. I think anyone who's intelligent, dear intelligent American, that you will like it. So how do you get Civil Thoughts? Well, you go to civilthoughts.com. Sign up. Trust me, it's totally free, risk-free. We're not selling your name to anybody. You'll enjoy it. Civilthoughts.com. All right, we are back with Marcus Ruzek of the Marcus Foundation talking about veterans and the way philanthropy uh, can um, be deployed to help our nation's 18 million, I believe, was the number you just gave us. Uh, veterans. Right. Yeah, it's, which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. And there's there's a lot that's not done well now, as we have been hearing about. But let's talk now about maybe some promising things or and some specific issues. So you said before you want to talk about traumatic brain injury. Let's talk about traumatic brain injury. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. So, um, I mean, if we look, let's yeah, 18 million veterans around the country total. Um, let's look at just uh, the global war on terrorism. So. It, that means, you know, you served post 9-11, after 9-11, there are 3.1 million veterans that deployed to a combat zone in the global war on terror. Okay, So if you just look at those 3.1 million, since 2001, there have been uh, a little over 400,000 traumatic brain injuries that are diagnosed uh, in the military. So if, if we were look, to look at, at that population, a few million plus, that, and, and look at that injury, um, that alone 
is a shocking issue. 10 to 20% of, of people who receive a mild traumatic brain injury, which is for, for all intents and purposes in this conversation, you can use that interrelated with uh, concussion, right? So mild TBI would be you, you bonked your head, you know, you're a car accident, either you did or did not lose consciousness, but you had, you had mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. And this happens a ton in the military. Not only are we recruiting from, you know, a lot of people who played a lot of youth sports likely have been in fights and bang their heads around a little bit. Well, then they go through training where they're exposed to all types of things like uh, artillery, shoulder fired rockets, even just repeated, repeated demolitions and small arms. Uh, these are, are micro blasts that are going on around them all the time. And then it, obviously in the biggest cases, you go overseas, you get blown up, you encounter an IED. Um, you know, name the issue and, and you can be hit with traumatic brain injury. It also has a cumulative effect. The more blast injuries that you're exposed to, the more likely you are to experience persistent symptoms of TBI. And so uh, actually there was a study uh, on veteran suicide that came out uh, just a few months ago, back in October, and uh, out, of the San, out of San Antonio, and it was published in JAMA. And what the study basically showed is that uh, for the last 15 years, uh, suicide among the general population had remained relatively flat, whereas the veteran population had increased tenfold, right? So, I mean, you, you see just this incredibly dramatic spike. And really, there were two main reasons why this study uh, attributed to this massive hike. Um, number one is that traditional mental health is simply not working for our veterans, right? So that, that's a huge point. Whether And that's in the VA or outside of the VA, that just the traditional mental health system uh, either there's it's, there's not enough of it, right, to treat the the mass need, or uh, or the traditional models just not not working for veterans. So that was clear. And the second is that veterans with traumatic brain injury, I think, were 56 percent more likely to um, to commit suicide than those without. And you have to understand a lot of veterans uh, are either misdiagnosed or undiagnosed entirely with with TBI. So they they have a brain injury and then they experience these persistent symptoms, and and really they. Are just kind of told they have PTSD because PTSD is the catch-all diagnosis for everybody who's deployed to a combat zone and come home and struggle. Um, and so, you know, veterans are are just not getting to the actual cause. And the biggest tragedy of all is there are great programs out there that can give people quality of life and not only return them to where they were, but but actually make them stronger. And what we believe in what we call post-traumatic growth, we believe that. Uh, the struggles and that the veterans uh, experience throughout their lives not only are, um, are are massive events in their lives, but they're they're catalysts to growth and to uh, better things. And so the programs that we've focused on uh, are, are all about those. Yeah, talk about those programs. You talk about the science of post traumatic growth. I mean, what what is that? Why is it? How is it innovative and new and, and, and pioneering? Well, I'll tell you kind of along our trajectory. So I explained earlier how we funded across the spectrum very broadly. And then we made a, a really a strategic decision to go narrow and deep. There's a lot of really good philanthropy happening around mental health. Uh, there's a lot of good, you know, on PTSD, evidence-based therapies. There's a lot of good uh, philanthropy focused on invisible wounds and other things. Um, but really, nobody else out there was doing traumatic brain injury clinically with an innovative approach. We found a program. The first program Bernie started was here in Atlanta, the Shepherd Center called the Share Military Initiative. We kind of replicated and built a model upon that out in Denver at the Marcus Institute for Brain Health at University of Colorado. Uh, and since then, we've now replicated that to five other locations around the country So and, and more to come. But we currently have seven TBI clinics that are open and running around the country. Uh, and, and we were having the success on clinical TBI, incredible clinical outcomes. 
I mean, just like you don't see anywhere else in the country on this issue. And then um, conversely, uh, you know, we looked at invisible wounds and we said, all right, TBI, we want to go deep there. And Bernie, we talked about mental health. And I said, Bernie, traditional mental health is just not just not cutting it. So even if we funded a good evidence-based therapy to, to have more access or incentivize veteran care, the fact of the matter is it's really just in general at large not working. And so he said, well, go find out what is working. So we we went around the country and met a lot of wacky programs. I mean, there's a ton of stuff out there, everything from, you know, um, smoking marijuana to licking uh, psychedelic frogs in Mexico to, um, you know, painting horses. I mean, there, there's and everything in between. I, I'm telling you, there's a lot out there. Um, and and some of those are good, you know, but it's in pocket. So what we, we came across an organization in Virginia called Boulder Crest Foundation, and they are really the home of post-traumatic growth training. And they had created a program that they've been delivering. I met them in 2015, 2016. And the founder, Ken Falk, who's a Navy bomb disposal um, guy, he, he had started Boulder Crest after uh, serving in the military and then starting and selling his company. And he said, you know, we're, we found something that we're really into. I experienced some of the program. I said, all right, what do you need? And, and what was needed was a curriculum. They said, we really need to develop an actual curriculum. And then we need to do an evaluation study. We need to study a cohort for 18 months and see what we're actually doing. And so intuitively, it felt right. Bernie agreed to fund this. And then as the results started coming in, Jeremy, we were blown away. I mean, it, um, you know, by the end of the 18 months, it, and, and again, show me a, a study in the traditional mental health world that that's tracking a cohort of people, you know, for 18 months, that's not, that doesn't happen. At best, you get three to six, you know, sometimes you get a year, but it's, it's not, most people don't follow them that long. And what we found is after a seven day intensive post-traumatic growth training program, not, not a clinic, not healthcare, not therapy, but a training program where, where the trainers or the guides, as we call them, are all combat veterans themselves who've been through the program. And, um, they teach wellness practices, 20 different wellness practices, and they teach them the science of post-traumatic growth. And what we had is uh, an average decrease of 55 uh, to 58% uh, in their post-traumatic stress scores, uh, decreases between 40 and 60% in, in insomnia, depression, stress, anxiety, a whole host of measures. So we, we measured that they were all significantly less bad uh, to, to the tune of three and four X better than traditional mental health programming. And then we also, because that's not enough, just being less bad, the, you know, the, the goal is to be better. So we have the post-traumatic growth inventory, which is like the quality of life scale that measures across a, a spectrum of things like deeper relationships and new possibilities, spiritual change, et cetera. And uh, we had an average of 54% increase that was sustained and growing 18 months out. So we said, we're on to something here. We need to bring this together with what we're doing clinically in TBI, and we need to scale these programs around the country. And we call that the Avalon Action Alliance. And so this is kind of the brainchild of Bernie, uh, where he brought these folks together uh, entrepreneurially and said, we're going to invest in this. We're going to bring other folks aboard and, and let's get them all over. So now we've got 12 uh, teams that deliver the post uh, the Warrior Path program, which is the post-traumatic growth program. Uh, and we've got seven TBI clinics and more to come. So uh, that's that's kind of our, our main area now. What's the special sauce? Well, uh, you know, two things on TBI, the special sauce is is what we call the integrated practice unit. So when you when you go to healthcare and you've got, you know, one issue, no one has only one issue, right? I mean, these things are everything is is correlated, especially in brain injury when especially when brain injury 
depression and PTSD, the symptoms all looks, the Venn diagram is like hard to follow. I mean, there, there's a lot of the same things. And so what we do at the integrated practice unit is it's led by neurology or physical medicine rehab, a TBI specialist, right? So everybody going there has traumatic brain injury and persistent symptoms. And everyone going almost to a T, 99% of them have co-occurring psychological health concerns, whether that's behavioral health, mental health, PTSD, et cetera. And so we wrap an entire care team around them. I mean, everyone talks about patient-centered care, but the integrated practice unit model is the secret sauce. I mean, we literally, the veteran comes in and the entire care team of neurology, neurosurgery, PM&R, uh, psychology, behavioral health, PT, OT, speech, all the therapists sit in a room. We call it the fishbowl where the veteran and, and their spouse or their, their uh, significant other uh, at best are, are there with them. And they tell their story one time on intake, right? And everyone asks the questions. And, and that entire care team is working together to treat that patient. So the patient in a three-week intensive outpatient program will be working with a physical therapist. And then his next appointment, you know, an hour later is with in art therapy. And, and the, the physical therapist is running down the hall telling the art therapist, hey, this happened in PT. If you can zero in on it for him in art therapy, I'm telling you that's something that's on his mind today, right? And and that to a T, every every veteran that comes through this program says, I had no, I don't understand how the integrative health specialist knew what happened in my behavioral health session and, and knew how to draw it out of me and so on. So the, the secret sauce on that clinical model, you don't see it elsewhere in healthcare is the integrated practice unit. Conversely, in our non-clinical program for post-traumatic growth, uh, I really believe it is the power of training and the, the power of um, disclosure, shared experience, and, and and being able to go to a place that, I, you know, when I went through this program actually in 2018 with a very dear friend of mine, a ranger buddy of mine who had been struggling mightily and, and had, had been contemplating suicide. And so I went through the program for him because he wanted me to be there with him and he was acutely in need. Uh, but not only that, I, I didn't realize how much it was going to actually help me and how many kind of demons I had in my closet from combat and life. And so I got to experience it with both those lenses. And, and the secret sauce there is truly being led by other veterans who've been through this program and having a trust to be able to disclose it all and understand, you know, just the word alone, post-traumatic growth in a, in a culture and a generation of veterans who are all being told, you went to war, you got PTSD, here's some pills, and you're going to have this diminished version for the rest of your life. You get what you get, new normal. That's just, it's just not true. So just the phrase alone, when I tell my friends who, who are struggling, I've sent a dozen of, of my peers to this, just the word post-traumatic growth, they go, whoa, whoa, what was that? What did you just say? Growth? Like, you mean, like, I don't have to be less? I, I can be potentially better because of what I've been through? And so that's it. That's the perception change. It's just a, a complete change in how, in the framing, the pre-frame. Yes. It's completely different. And, and it's training, Jeremy, because we were trained to go to war, right? We, you took a civilian you, and the army does an incredible job. The military does an incredible job taking someone right off the street and, and making them into a warrior. And, and we were trained to do that, right? So we inherently, we understand training. Nobody trained us to take the uniform off and move on. And that's what this program does. I mean, I'm telling you, if, if we are successful here, eventually every service member when they're taking the uniform off will be go through warrior path and they will be trained to go back um, and be better because of what they've experienced. Trained for growth now. Yeah. And building on their struggles, becoming stronger because of their struggles rather than weaker because of their struggles. I'm stealing that from you. You said that. Yeah. Well, I've stolen from a bunch of other great people that we support. So. <laughs>
it, it strikes me that, and I don't know how familiar you, you will be with this, but I, the Marcus Foundation is not just doing veteran stuff. It's doing stuff in the realm of education, et cetera. Are you learning things from the work on veterans causes that you're applying over like two example, two, for example, education? I mean, it strikes me as there's a lot we could learn what you're discovering on this side with respect to how we approach that area as well, especially overcoming childhood trauma, all that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. We, we are, we're, we're in all of our program areas really inform each other. Right. And now look what we're doing in veterans. We, we have a very robust Jewish portfolio. You know, Bernie it funds a lot here in the U S fighting anti-Semitism, uh, but as well as in Israel. All right. And we're looking at a, a nation at war there. Uh, and, and, and one that experienced incredible trauma at the hand of a terrorist attack just a couple months ago, right? And so there are a lot of learnings from what we've done in, in that respect that, that are going to share over to our, our work in Israel and, and in the Jewish community. Um, but in education specifically, since you brought it up, I, I will tell you one of the main things that we've looked at through transition is around employment and around how you transition folks. And so we are, as many are, growing more and more disenchanted with the higher education system in America. And we were watching... I'm guessing after October 7th, uh, Bernie's even more disenchanted. Yes. Uh, after no, October I know. 7th. And we're watching more and more young people waste money at, at college. Most of the of the 18-year-olds that go to four-year college are not going to complete. You know, They're going to end up in debt and waste, having wasted a whole bunch of years and now going back into the workforce really no better off with with a disadvantaged start. And so one of the things we focused on a lot, and, and similar to veterans, right? Let's give them a skill. They, they, they earn certain amount of skills, hard and soft in the military, and then they transition into a workplace. They do that well. And, and I will put a plug for the Call of Duty endowment. Nobody is doing a better job on the philanthropic side of funding veteran transition into, into quality employment than Call of Duty endowment. But, but if we do that well, they're going to do better after service. And um, and we're, the same applies to our high school students. You know, these 18 year olds, you know, we're looking at skilled trades specifically and, and we're looking at construction trades. Right. And kind of rightfully so. I mean, the, the boss started the Home Depot. Right. And and not only did that trans transform contracting and construction in America uh, and birth just tons of businesses by putting everything a home builder would need under one roof, but it also created the DIY culture. And and now you have in America. A whole lot of young people that are are not acquiring these skills and are increasingly not interested in working with their hands, uh, and so we've got to change the narrative around these things that, that these high quality careers that people think as dirty jobs or blue collar. Because uh, the fact of the matter is, if you have an entrepreneurial bone in your body and you become a plumber or a carpenter, the the, the sky is the limit for how well you might do in life. Um, AI is not going to do that job, and it's not going to be outsourced. It's the safest path you can take and one that also can be rewarding and you know, you can prosper from it. And, and we so funded a program here in Georgia that we're looking to scale into other states called Construction Ready, which is is getting the construction trade culture and keeping shop classes and construction programs in the high schools, putting them into middle schools, um, and then building construction clubs all the way down to elementary. Because the one thing that we've learned is that you've got to start young. If, if you wait until somebody's in high school, and, and then they start working with their hands, it's too late. So we're, we're trying to build a culture and really change the narrative around uh, the construction trades. What can ordinary givers learn from the Marcus Foundation's work, not just on veterans, but maybe from these other areas too? Like, do you think about that? Does anybody ever ask you, like, you know, look, I'm not giving what you guys are giving away, but I give something 
and it's not insubstantial, let's say, what can I, what can they learn from what you guys, your approach? It's a great question, Jeremy, for a lot of reasons. The the best is because Bernie wrote a book on this a year ago. I didn't even know that. Oh, wow. Okay. Here's your plug. He did. So I, I will tell you about the book, which is called Kick Up Some Dust. Uh, and it's kind of lessons on doing it yourself. It's really Bernie's story. So so Bernie and his and his co-founder of the Home Depot, Arthur Blank, wrote wrote a book many years ago called Built from Scratch, which is the Home Depot story. You know, it's Bernie and Arthur, and it's it's how they built this incredible company, the Home Depot. And during COVID, you know, we were we were trying to we actually had a, an effort here to kind of capture a lot of Bernie's stories. And so we started working with a historian to kind of help us capture those stories. Really not not setting out. He was not setting out to write a book and. And ultimately, we kind of said this, your life story and what you've done in philanthropy specifically is a life. It, it, it is a book and it's one that people need to read. And so Bernie wrote the book, um, Built for, or I'm sorry, uh, Kick Up Some Dust. And the whole idea, his, if, if you look at any of the interviews he's done on the book, he says, my, his hope for this book is that it'll get into the hands of others who are like him, see problems in the world that need fixing and get their hands dirty and, and, and fixing it and, and get busy about fixing it. And and specifically in philanthropy, uh, how to be an entrepreneurial philanthropist. Don't he says this all the time at our board meetings. We can't just sit back and wait for you know social entrepreneurs to come to us. We we know the issues. We need to get out there and, and solve them and and invest in organizations and in people and demand an ROI. Um, as Bernie says all the time, and I think to, to answer your question really concisely, when you think of philanthropy or giving. Bernie says, I worked really hard for this money. I'm not going to just give it away. And so he's going to expect an ROI. If you're going to write a check to a veteran charity, they ought to be able to clearly explain to you and show you how they're having an impact saving and changing someone's life. So I think that's number one. That, that That's really, that's core of what Bernie says that we do at the Marcus Foundation. We have giving areas, we have priorities, uh, and it's all driven by his vision. But at, at our core, we're about saving and changing people. Last question, Marcus, what are two or three of your nonprofit partners that you would want to draw people's attention to here and encourage them to check out if they're interested in this in this issue? Thank you for that, Jeremy. I, I will. I, I mentioned them once, and that's the Avalon Action Alliance. So specifically on traumatic brain injury, uh, non-clinical approaches to the veteran suicide epidemic, I, I believe we are just doing um, just the most important work in this area. There, there's some other good ones out there, but but this area needs a lot of philanthropic attention, and uh, and ultimately, it's going to change healthcare for everybody. So, I mean, it's funny we set out to to serve veterans, and what we've learned is traumatic brain injury, not just for veterans, but for all of us, is a problem in this country. And there's no standard of care. There there is no uh, standard approach or protocol. If if three of us get TBIs in three different states, we'll probably encounter five different protocols. Okay, so. We have a program that works. We've proven it, that it works on veterans. And the goal, we're going to be embarking on a clinical study, uh, multi-center throughout our network to, to make this reimbursable and sustainable long-term, and then ultimately change medicine in this area so that when our loved ones you know, outside of the military get, get concussions, there's going to be a, a good program that works. So that's one. Um, and then you know, uh, the other side of this coin, we talked about the VA and the struggles. Uh, with the federal uh, resources going to this issue, uh, we we started an organization called Mission Roll Call. The Mission Roll Call is a, a newer veterans advocacy organization, and, and the vision here is to put the megaphone in front of the veteran population and give them an opportunity to speak out on how on the on the reforms that need to take place and how to best support our community. 
Uh, and so mission roll call, uh, you know, think of our, our clinical and, and post-traumatic growth programs as healing and taking care of veterans, improving a new model, and then mission roll call as kind of the, the advocacy action arm to go change the way the government's doing this. Because if we're ever going to welcome our veterans home and provide the services they need to give them the best success, you know, we really need to solve that at government because they've got all the money. Uh, that's what it comes down to and, and all the ability to help. And so a, a quote that drives all that is something Bernie said early on, which is if we properly heal and transition our veterans, we'll heal our nation. And that's what we're trying to do. So these are organizations, I think, that are, are leading the way there. Fantastic. Uh, Avalon Action Alliance and Mission Roll Call. Check them out. And check out Kick Out Some Dust by Marcus Ruzek's boss, Bernie Marcus. It's available on Amazon. I'm embarrassed that I didn't uh, can make that connection before we did this, but I'm glad you brought it up because I'm sure it's full of a lot of good advice for, for givers. Marcus Ruzak, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Jeremy. I'm, I'm happy to do this, and um, I really appreciate you guys talking about veterans on your podcast. So thank you. We wish you all the best with your work. Thanks so thanks. much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, we invite you to subscribe and or rate and review this discussion on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And have a guest you'd like to hear from? Send your request to our producer, Katie Janice, at kjanus at amphil.com. That's K-J-A-N-U-S at amphil.com. <laughs>